Hi, everybody. This is Christian Cison, and welcome to the Third Fridays podcast. It's another edition of this lovely show that we've started uh, almost two years ago now. Last month's episode had to do with a uh, unfortunate landmark decision regarding schedule loss of use for claimants who have returned to work but also exhibit permanent non-schedule disability. Uh, that case, from what I hear, is actually going up to the Court of Appeals. So I'm looking forward to a higher court reviewing what I believe to be an erroneous decision. Uh, for more information on that, please check out last month's episode and also email me, call me, feel free to just ask whatever questions you may have. But let's get to today's show. Uh, today's show is going to talk about a little little more statutory and regulatory uh, decision-making from uh, the Administrative New York Board, uh, not really about what the third department has done, but what we want the third department to do in several cases. And, and this is going across the board with uh, self-insureds and carriers uh, across the entire state, uh, and defense firms, it's not just us. It's going to be a big, big issue that's going to be litigated for quite some time. So to help me uh, discuss that topic, I'm going to welcome Jeremy Janis to the, sh- to the show. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi. <laughs> okay, so uh, tell me, Jeremy, what we're dealing with. Give me a background of how we learned about this issue in the first place. Okay, so we, uh, I recently had a trial on a uh, controverted case. The, the case involved a woman getting hit by a bus. Um, we went to trial. The issue was um, a gray area, so we needed to prove that there was no special hazard inherent to the, the claimant. Um, the law judge ultimately ruled against us, finding that it was a condition of employment that the, the woman had to be at this specific spot at which she got hit by the bus. Right. So uh, even backing that up even further, right, our gray area argument was that she was there long before her shift was even scheduled to start, right? So, like, if if she had been on the, the bus that she had taken every day, then we might not have a gray area argument. But in our specific instance, she had been at the bus hours before her shift was scheduled to start, and it was an unlikely uh, reason why she would have had to do that other than if she had to deviate from the course of her employment. Does that make sense? It, it totally does. And this was it was an extreme example. Um, she was there about an hour early. She um, was hit, unfortunately hit by this random bus that got in a huge accident and went off the curb. Um, and our- right. And we, we, didn't, we didn't dispute that the accident happened. No. Right. Or that there were causally related injuries. Our dispute was more uh, technical as it related to... Uh, a deviation from the course of employment. So uh, you mentioned that the judge ruled against us. Uh, obviously, uh, we appealed because we believe that that was the correct thing to do. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, so we had filed an appeal. We had actually found an analogous case and then used that. Um, but unfortunately, the board, instead of considering the content of our appeal, decided to not review our appeal based on a technical um, interpretation of a statute. Right, okay. Before they even did that, right, we uh, went to the New York Self-Insured Spring Workshop uh, in upstate New York, and we learned from other uh, people who had talked about this issue there that they were starting to do this ex post facto kind of 
ruling, right, where they would say uh, we are going to do this. But in doing that, they had decided appeals without giving us or really anybody uh, advance warning of it. And that, that's my interpretation. Do you, did you feel the same way? Or, or? Oh, I most definitely feel the same way. And I, I had a chance to review a number of board panel decisions that came out over the last three months. And the application of the enforcement of the statute was all over the place. Okay. So now we have a uh, controverted matter that was appealed on uh, favorable grounds to our client. But uh, we have a decision from the board panel that really took us out of that zone. Um, let's get into why it was rejected, right? So uh, there's a regulation, uh, 12NYCRR 300.13, that talks about what? So the statute governs pretty much how we fill out an RB89 form, which is the cover page for an appeal. Um, right. So they in, in that statute, they say that the application has to fill, be filled out, quote, unquote, completely, right? So what we do is we look at the actual form and answer all the little boxes that have to be checked and, and, and filled out. And a couple of them are very interesting because if you look at the form exactly, it asks for the issues that will be appealed. It then asks for the basis of the appeal, and the third one, which is the one at, you know, in question here, is the objection or exception that has been raised, right? So what the board did is that they decided that saying that the objection was raised at the hearing, even though it was made in conjunction to what we filled out as it relates to the issues and the basis of appeal, was not good enough, and they would not hear the case at all, Right. That's correct. Um, and in the past, we had seen question 12, which is the basis for the appeal. A lot of uh, claimants attorneys would always put just C attached. Right. And we had seen it be rejected on that basis. But until recently, we had never seen paragraph 15 become a basis for them rejecting an application for review. Right. So my contention is that 11 and 12 on the RB89, where you're talking about the issue of, for review and the basis of the appeal, you, that already tells the board and give no, gives notice to the other, all the parties in interest that the objection was made to those issues, correct? Like Otherwise, there would be no reason for us to outline the issues and the basis for the appeal. I most definitely agree. Okay. So to me, paragraph 15 really just has to be – uh, determined as to whether the objection was made at all, right? And we had been doing this for years and years and years, both sides. Claimants and carriers, self-insureds have been doing this, and board panels have been accepting that as a, as a sufficient basis for hearing the case. So what the board panel is now doing is making us state it an additional time what the objection is to, Right? It's making us state the actual issue again in a separate box on the same form and on the same page on the same form, right? Yes. Okay. So tell me a little bit about our action plan and what we're going to do about this kind of ruling. So immediately after we got the result, we reached out to the client. The client was 
immediately decided that not only did he want to file an application for full board review, but he also wanted to bring it to the third department. Right. Okay. So going to the third department, uh, what do you think our argument is going to be? Well, I th- there's a, a few different arguments we have to make. First of all, our due process rights are clearly violated. Um, this is a case where the woman was hit by a bus. She was hospitalized for a number of months, um, most likely going to be permanently totally disabled. So the property rights are very, very significant in this case. That's a good point. Uh, there, there's clearly uh, something at issue here that is not your, you know, your hands, finger, feet, and toe case. Uh, this is this is a very big issue that it's not really something to push aside. Uh, I was kind of uh, leaning towards you know an arbitrary and capricious standard, right, uh, or an abusive discretion. But the third department actually has not looked too favorably on claimants or carriers that argue for this to be applied to the board, right? Yes. Okay. So we looked at a couple of cases, uh, you know, that talk about this standard and and. Specifically, I looked at one from 2009 that actually commented on the rarity of making this finding. Essentially, that the third department would rule that the board had acted arbitrarily and capriciously. And they, they admitted that it was rare, and they also admitted that it really only applied to two out of the three instances where they would do it, right? So let's go over the three. Newly discovered evidence that the board would fail to consider... Uh, a material change in condition, or the third one would be an improper failure to consider the issue that was raised, right? And the third department actually talked about only the first two, right, that they had found that the board had abused its discretion or acted arbitrarily or capriciously. And not only that, they only, not only they, they really found the abuse of discretion to only occur when there was a failure to uh, consider newly discovered evidence or the material chain of condition. That sheds even further light on what we have to do. Uh, we have to argue for that third prong almost in a way that it's never been done before. Would you agree? I agree. And I think the way we have to go is that they're applying the law uh, arbitrarily and capriciously, meaning that they're not applying it the same to everybody. They're giving different warnings to everybody. That's, that's, that's actually a good explanation, right? Because uh, if we go back to that uh, appellate division decision that has commented on the rarity of this application, uh, they cited three decisions from 1981, 1957, and 1950, uh, which kind of uh, gives an indication of what uh, – you'd have to prove like it has to be a really really strong consideration and you know we make that clear any time that uh you know client wants to go to the third department right we're facing an uphill battle already because the board has a broad discretion to you know promulgate rules and regulations and then apply them in a way that they see fit as long as there's substantial evidence to support it but what you mentioned was you know, the abuse of discretion or act, acting one way towards one party while not doing it to another party is certainly different than that. So explain a little bit of, of how it, it's applied only to some cases or, you know, only some parties. Okay. So in my review of the number of board panel decisions, I was able to see that, um, first of all, they gave warnings in certain cases. So they only gave warnings to certain parties, and a lot of those were claimants, counsel, in addition, by only providing notice to certain parties, um, only there's only certain parties that were able to 
be knew about the problem. Right. So when we have a situation where you know appeals are filed by multiple parties across multiple cases across multiple venues, uh, you know throughout the state, those appeals have already been filed. Right. So. It's not like we're disregarding a warning because the action of the, those appeals have already been filed prior to this quote-unquote warning being issued by the board. Yeah, so the problem is what are we supposed to do about the appeals that are already filed? They're, they're sitting there. Are we supposed to make another filing and therefore break the duplicate filing rule? Right, and, and you bring up a good point there, Jeremy, because you know, the board has taken great uh, – Lengths, or they have, you know, to essentially state that if you file an RB89 twice or uh, you file really any document twice, that you could be assessed a penalty for doing that. So, without any clear indication as to how to abide by this warning, a warning that was not submitted to all parties, we're kind of put, uh, you know, in a box where we have to make a decision that puts our clients in a position to get a penalty either way, right? And I think the incorrect thing to do would be to just throw out an appeal based on that. If you want to issue a penalty because of some arbitrary and capricious way, I think that is a totally separate issue from actually failing to hear the issues on its merits. I agree. And just to show how haphazard the uh, board has been, it wasn't until like the end of July that the board started giving a specific date for which they were going to start enforcing it, and that date was in April. Right. Right. So it's, again, it's, it's kind of going around in circles where we are kind of on a string and the board's kind of holding us up and telling us how to act. But the way we would be acting would be in contravention of another rule, which could lead to a penalty. So uh, we do think that this type of issue uh, is going to be going to the third department. Uh, we've had multiple clients agree with us on that position. And so filings will be made. I don't think that it's going to be different uh, across the board uh, for other defense firms as well. I think uh, they are in agreement. Uh, and, and even claimants firms that have dealt with this issue too. I mean, you did mention that more claimants councils have allowed to skate by big surprise. Mm. But if the board actually wants to defeat an arbitrary and capricious argument, they're going to have to make this ruling against claimants councils too. Oh, I must and, definitely agree. And, and then you're going to deal with claimants counsel going to the third department, and it's going to be an entirely, entirely different situation at that point. So I'm looking forward to seeing how the third department uh, rules on this issue. Uh, you know, echoing what we talked about last month on the podcast, uh, they didn't really help us uh, in uh, Yoda Taxi uh, versus the claimant uh, to Hare, but. I'm more hopeful about this because it seems to just be an unfair uh, ruling across the board. And, you know, we'll see what happens, right? Uh, you know, when do you think a timeline like this could, could uh, finish, I guess, with this issue, right? In that particular case, when are we filing the appeal? Uh, I think it's this month, correct? The, or the, the notice of appeal is this the month? The notice of appeal is going out this month, so we still have a good nine months before we even issue it. So it's going to be sometime next year where we get a decision from the third department. Right, or sometime next year towards the end of the year, yes. probably, where they're going to hear the, hear the issue and uh, really discuss it. I imagine they're going to have a litany of other cases talking about the same issue. So um, that 
that board panel decision that we had is probably similar to a board panel panel decision that's probably on your desk as well. Uh, and I'm talking to you, the listener. Uh, so make sure your uh, procedural filings are timely. Now, Jeremy, you also wanted to discuss something in the CPLR, right? So uh, what what kind of argument are we also bringing forth uh, using other statutes governed by you know New York courts? Okay, so the third department and all the courts in New York um, – use the CPLR as a basis for the administration, the rules of procedure. Um, recently, CPLR 2001 was amended to expand the scope of technical defects to be excused. Um, so it pretty much it says that if there is a omission, um, something is misapplied or filled out incorrectly in a form, it shouldn't be fatal to the application or the motion before the court. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's honestly a, a good public policy uh, application, right? Um, you know, we're talking about uh, real, real issues that have overreaching uh, effects on everybody, and to uh, really decline to hear uh, those kinds of cases for a procedural defect that I don't even believe exists. Based on what we've we've talked about, this, you know, the last ten minutes uh, doesn't really make sense to me. So, you know, let's think of it in a way as a prejudice to each party, right? Uh, in a controverted matter that we're appealing, we're not paying during the pendency of the appeal, at least to the initial board panel level, correct? Yes. So that point in time where the case is going before the board panel, and the board panel looks at it for the very first time, all those actions have been taken. Claimants, counsel, filed a rebuttal to our appeal knowing that those actions have been taken and understands that there is uh, rulings and allowable statutes for us to take the act that we did. At the time the board panel looks at those pieces of paper, there's no actual additional prejudice to the claimant when they're hearing the merits of the case, right? So what I'm thinking is they have a choice of either throwing it out and trying to hope that we don't go to the third department or actually hearing the merits and deciding the case as it applies to the law, right? At that point, no additional prejudice is going to be made to the claimant if they actually hear the merits. And my thinking is, is that if they had just ruled in favor of the claimant, you know, our client may decide that the cost-benefit of going to the third department is not actually in their favor. Most likely. And it should be pointed out that under WCL 23, both parties have the right to appeal. Right. um, But pretty much what they're doing is just taking away that right and depriving us of the right to be heard. Right. I mean, we've also seen plenty of appeals filed by uh, either other carriers and coverage cases or a claimant's counsel uh, in your just garden variety 1v1 cases uh, that don't comply with every little tiny thing on the RB89 and don't comply with uh, archaic rules about margins uh, on the uh, pieces of paper or the type size of the font. We've seen those issues just seen as a warning or just kind of saying, hey, don't really do this next time, right? And those appeals aren't thrown out. No, they're so, not. So uh, arbitrary and capricious goes to the heart of choosing you know, 
choosing one over another unfairly or refusing to hear the merits unfairly, I, I do think that that has some kind of application to our case here. Uh, you know, what what would you think uh, a claimant's rebuttal might be to our third department filing? That I think they have to make the argument that the statute is what the statute is, and the board had full discretion to, to to not hear the appeal if they chose to. Right, kind of like oh, the board acted properly, yes. right? And I'm almost very very. Uh, vigilant about attacking that argument specifically because that claimant firm is going to be hit with this same kind of issue, right? Almost definitely. So uh, arguing the board acted improperly, I'm hoping that the third department will then look at other filings made by that firm and other uh, filings made by really firms across the board to show that you know, this is something where it's not being done across the board. It's just kind of a pick and choose. And, and what worries me is that when we actually have a fighting chance with a good argument uh, before the board panel, that it, that's the case that's going to be used to be found against us. Yeah, and I think it's a slippery slope as well. Um, they nice, start reject- nice use of that law school phrase, <laughs> slippery slope. If they start rejecting these, they're going to find other reasons not to hear applications. I mean, I, we know the volume of appeals has gone up, but they need to balance the equities in deciding what not to hear and what to hear. Right. So I think what we have to do is is not only uh, advise our clients uh, how to do this proper appeal correctly, but also be on the lookout for your uh, cases on appeal currently, right? Uh, start to understand that this is going to be a third department issue and that you may want to consider, you know, either filing an amicus brief on other uh, on your other cases or essentially getting authority to go to the third department now because this is something that's going to keep happening unless you're one of the lucky ones that the board decides, okay, like we'll let you pass through. Uh, so it's something that we uh, are going to be monitoring very closely. Yeah. So, Jeremy, I wanted to thank you for coming on to the show today. Uh, I wanted to use you specifically because you had some good uh, expertise on that particular case, and I know other board panel decisions are coming down uh, the pipeline as well. So for Jeremy Janis, uh, this is Christian Cisan reminding everybody to defend from day one.